0: Welcome to Between the Before and After, a podcast about the stories that shape us. I'm your host, Coach John McLernan, and each episode I bring you an inspiring guest with a moving story that shines a light on the power of the human spirit. Before we dive in, I want to let you know about two very important things. Number one, the stories shared here are often gritty, raw, and vulnerable, and very likely will include speaking about sensitive topics suited for a mature audience. Number two, this podcast is also broadcast live on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. So on whatever platform you follow myself or Freedom Nutrition Coaching, you have the opportunity to participate in this discussion. You can comment on the live stream, and we encourage your participation both by commenting and asking questions. And so this podcast is about exploring the stories that take place between the before and after photos, not just in the realm of weight loss, but in all areas of life. So let's dive in. All right, welcome to another episode of Between the Before and After. I'm your host, Coach John McClernan, and I'm very excited for my guest today. I think I said every time, but I'm always excited because I love having these conversations with special and remarkable people. So, Melissa, is it Mayer or Meyer? Mayer. Mayor. Okay, we'll get we'll get that right. I should have asked before we started recording, but anyways, this is real oh, life. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, so you are a holistic physical therapist and also the author of the book Recovering My True Self. And in there, and we're going to dive into this a little bit. You share the story of the journey you went on to uh, go through the process of donating your kidney to your husband. And there's a few other things in there that you've had to kind of grapple with and obstacles you've had to overcome in your life. And so uh, I'm excited to dive into that. So welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yes. Yeah, so, and you're coming from, uh, you, you live in New York, is that right? Mm hmm. Uh, now, when people hear New York, they probably think New York City. But uh, do you live in, <laughs> do you live in New York City, or do you live in Upstate New York, or or where are you located?
1: I lived in New York City for many years, ten years, and then when my children were very young, six months and uh, two, I moved we, my my family and I moved to the East End of Long Island, what's known as the Hamptons.
0: The Hamptons. Okay, I, I hear that's a fair. I don't know. I've heard that name before, and I think I've heard it in reference to it being like a fancy place. I don't know. Am I am I right in that regard?
1: <laughs> it does have um, that reputation, but the reason we moved out here is the just glorious nature. I mean, the beaches yeah. and the pine barrens. It's it's a it's a really kind of special magical place if, if you love nature, which we do. <laughs>
0: Oh, that that's awesome. So it gives you, it gives you like, you're not so far away from the big city if you want to be there, but it also gives you a sense of uh, being able to reconnect with nature as well, which I think is probably really exactly. important to you.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So y- you said in your description that you are a holistic physical therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, now, is that different from a physiotherapist or is this a, a similar qualification, but with different, uh, a different approach or what exactly are we meaning when we are saying that?
1: So, yeah, in in the States, we, we, we say physical therapists and I, I believe in Canada and the UK and maybe Australia, they say physiotherapists. So it, yes. it's the same thing. Um, I'm a physical therapist. I have my doctorate in physical therapy. I went to grad school for three years after my undergrad and did a lot of work in the traditional healthcare model, working at hospitals, home care agencies, outpatient um, clinics, doing kind of sports rehab and things like uh, things of that nature. And, um, uh, in New York City, and then when my children were born, I you know took some time off to just connect with them. We moved out here to the Hamptons, and just I was reconnecting with nature, reconnecting, re- connecting for the first time with being a mom. And yeah, 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 and took some time off. And then when I did get back into physical therapy, I started um, picking up shifts at a local clinic, doing traditional therapy again. But I always had an interest in holistics. I am a certified yoga teacher, meditation, energy clearing work, essential oils, I mean, all of it I love and I always wanted to combine the two and never really kind of knew how and how to navigate that. And then, you know, after donating my kidney and the transformational journey and just all the inner work um, through the years just kind of all came together where now I have a holistic healing practice where I, See patients privately, and we work on you know traditional injuries and rehab, but we also go a lot deeper, which I know yeah. the podcast and your work is a lot about, and I love it.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic, and and for me, of course, it's it's really fascinating because what I love about this is you've had an opportunity to spend time in the so the allopathic medical model,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and in the U.S., it's a little bit different than Canada because you have. Well I think probably the most complicated system in the world or it's, it seems like it I, I, I do not understand it, but it seems like it's a uh, it's, it, it's a sickness for profit kind of model down there where it's not necessarily the health of the individual that's prioritized, but it's and I, I, you know that's not to say there aren't good people within the system wanting to genuinely help people but I mean the way that the, the structure is set up, maybe it's really difficult for people to genuinely get the help that they need. Would that be an accurate assessment?
1: Definitely. Definitely. I mean, you know, there's, there's merit to, you know, I don't want to say our model and and merit necessarily, but just there, there we there's good quality healthcare in this country Mm -hmm. delivered by very fine practitioners. I mean, they took a kidney out of my body and put it in my husband's basically saving it. So um, I'm certainly a fan of um, traditional healthcare models um, and, and the quality care and the very dedicated, Professionals that we have that, I mean, have been working during a pandemic. My husband's a physician. So yeah, yeah. I, I certainly um don't like to knock um, traditional healthcare. I mean, of course, our system and the for-profit, you know, the healthcare companies, pharmaceutical companies. I mean, obviously we have a huge problem in that arena. But in terms of individual healing, you know, I tell people the traditional healthcare model is a great place to start when you're sick. You know, you feel sick, go to the doctor. Yeah. And if you, you know, have a shoulder pain, you can go see a local physical therapist. And then what I like is, you know, after people have done that work and, you know, it's becoming way more ubiquitous, you know, holistic healing and, and alternative healthcare, um, people are ready for it, you know, and people want it. And they're like, I went to a physical therapist. I saw my, I, I was doing some neck pain and back pain exercises, but I just don't feel like I really got to where I need to go to. And then I say. Well now you found the right person and people find me and we do the work and and it's great. So I think it's a good place to start,
0: but mm-hmm.
1: there's so many, you know, people that are are shifting and people want that shift and it's, you know, it, it, it's exciting. It's an exciting time I think in um alternative healthcare
0: yeah what i I mean what i'd really love to see is more of a blending between maybe holistic and and allopathic where we start to see people as as a whole rather than as like a discrete unit now that's not to say there isn't a place let's say for example you would have worked probably quite carefully with a nephrologist uh, in terms of getting ready to uh, donate a kidney and we're going to dive into the kind of the the story and that, that that personal journey as well here as we go forward but you know maybe to that kind of specialist, you're a kidney and to maybe a cardiologist, you're a heart and to a pulmonary specialist, you're a set of lungs. And it's all these sort of disconnected dots in a sense. And it can maybe can be difficult to get kind of connected, connected care and type of system like that. So you can get very, very powerful, very specialized care, very highly trained individuals. So in that sense, it's really, really uh, amazing. But maybe sometimes there's a struggle to sort of connect the dots between the care. And that's eventually what leads people to someone like yourself.
1: Yes, absolutely, and uh, and you're right. I mean, and and I think one of the biggest problems too is, you know, why can't healthcare cover some of these alternative therapies? Why do they have to be paid for out of pocket? And that's mm-hmm. a big problem because it becomes like a very kind of privileged situation if you can afford to have, you know, a a meditation coach or you know to do right. some things like that. Mm-hmm. Where it should be, these are things that we all need. You know, we all Need to care for our mental health and our bodies as a whole. So I think that's probably the most unfortunate part of our system is that you know it doesn't cover any of that. You only get covered for very very basic stuff if you're very very deathly ill in the emergency room.
0: Right. Yes.
1: Yeah.
0: And and we could also perhaps we could we might posit that some of that is a byproduct of the health of the, our society as a whole. And so it's almost like our system was set up to. Uh, help those who are in a triage state. And we've kind of been moving towards with like greater sort of automation and dependence on technology and, you know, efficiencies being found and less physical labor and so on. Society as a whole has kind of been experiencing greater and greater levels of sickness Um, Which makes it really, really difficult because now you have a system that's basically only geared towards helping those who are the most urgent priority versus uh, taking a proactive model. So I think that's maybe one of the challenges that we face going into the 21st century here.
1: Absolutely. And um, Marianne Williamson, who is um, just I've I've followed her work extensively and I'm a huge fan of her work on so many levels, but she. Actually ran for president in the 2020 election. No way. And, That's pretty yeah, cool. And she was on the debate stage, and one of her biggest, you know, moments that went viral was she said, they asked her about healthcare. And she said, We don't have a healthcare system, we have a sickness care system.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And,
1: and that went viral because everyone I think resonated with that and said, Absolutely, you go to the doctor, you get sick. And she said, Why aren't we asking the question of why are we so sick?
0: Mm-hmm. yeah yeah and how you know you think about how much it's costing the nation in terms of tax dollars and and, and whatnot and who's who's profiting off of that and you know but uh, and we could really go down that rabbit hole yeah. maybe we should on on one of my other podcasts which is uh wellness wellness unfiltered with uh by uh, we have a project uh, project called the deep health academy i say we because i have a few other collaborators so we might we might have to invite you back to come to wellness unfiltered to kind of discuss that because that's one of the problems we're looking to solve there but here we want to dive a little bit more into into your, your personal story. Um, and so I think at the heart of your story is, is this fact that you ended up donating a kidney to your husband. So how like that in itself, even the thought of it sounds like, Oh my gosh, like I'm taking a a vital organ out of my body to give it to another person and there's got to be like, I, at least I imagine, there's this whole kind of journey you have to go through, because it's not, a, even though it's done so commonly, and maybe we just, oh yeah, I had a kidney transplant, like we shrug our shoulders like like it just happened, but this is like a major, even like a major a physical job. trauma to go through, and I don't know if there's an emotional trauma, to, you know, that, that really sort of goes with it, or, you know, but what was, what was that experience like, or maybe we go right back to the beginning, when did you get the, sort of the, uh, diagnosis that, okay, your your husband's kidneys aren't working and he's going to need a kidney.
1: So we always knew that he was going to need a kidney transplant and he had seen a new nephrologist at um, Columbia Presbyterian in New York city, where coincidentally was my first physical therapy job. Okay. Yeah. He said that, um, he had started seeing a new nephrologist when I was pregnant with my first daughter. So she's now 10. So yes. 10 years ago, I started seeing yeah. um, a new nephrologist who said, I know, you know, you always know you needed a kidney transplant, but now it's it's really coming up on time.
0: So did he have um, a uh, like a genetic condition or like how? Yes. Gen- okay. a
1: genetic condition, thankfully, non-progressive. So hopefully, you know, my kidney should last for a really long time. So like his body's attacking the kidney. Thank goodness. But yeah. um, so that was 10 years ago. And we did all the work of um, identifying people, getting people tested to see who would be a match. And the best match was me. So even though I was pregnant, I said, you know, of course, I'll be the donor. I I have the biggest vested interest in In, in in him surviving.
0: surviving. Yeah. And and being able to live a longer life.
1: Exactly. So So I decided to be the donor. And then we were able to wait seven years miraculously because the doctors said, you know, now that you have a willing donor living in your house, like, you know, because he was otherwise very healthy. He wasn't on dialysis. Mm-hmm. He was a full-time physician who worked, you know, crazy hours and, and he was healthy and thriving. And they said, let's just go as far as we can. And miraculously, that was, you know, seven years that we had, um, we were able to leave New York city. We, we, you know, had our, both of our daughters and it was, I was so happy for all those years. We didn't really have to think about it. Like it was done. It was okay. ready. And yeah. Then it was just when it was time, then it would be time, but we didn't talk about it. We just said, let's wait. And then in 2018 in August, it was time. So yeah, we did it.
0: So yeah. Cause that really was kind of the next thing I was curious about is did it, you know, knowing that it was going to happen, did it feel like it was something hanging over your head or was it something you were at peace with? You know, like when the time is is right, we're going to do this. We already know it. And so you just kind of let it go.
1: Yeah. Well, a little bit of both. I mean, on some level I said, let's, you know, let's, we can't talk about this in front of people and, and, and and just like be in this waiting game. Let's just put this in the back of our minds. You know, we were responsible. We did the work, but now we don't have to talk about it. It, It's done. So, I mean, he would go to the doctor every six months and get blood work to, you know, watch the, his um, creatinine level to see when it was really time. So, you know, we were doing that, but then otherwise it was in the back of our mind. I mean, I guess on some level, it was a little bit of a trauma and taking a toll. But you know, our life was really beautiful. We were really lucky. So we were able to just kind of go forward. And then leading up to the surgery, I was doing like a lot of a lot of healing work, a lot of energy work, a lot of clearing. And then when, um, you know, we had when I had the surgery, I describe in the book, what I had was called the divine wake up where I woke up and felt just super connected to spirit and myself. And it was really transformational. Um, And that being said, I think the day after the surgery, after I got back on my feet and I was doing okay, I had like a, I had about like a a 12 hour window of like, where I was just crying, you know, Mm -hmm. I just couldn't stop crying. And, you know, everyone was like, is she okay? And, and I, I said, and then the next day, when I woke up after that spell, I said, Oh, I got it all out, you know, like all right, the, yeah. the last seven years and everything that, you know, people are like you're so strong as I'm not strong. I'm, a, you know, like I just like all, yeah, of, yeah. all of the uh, what's our life going to look like, you know, all of that. But I just yeah. let it out. And then after that, it was kind of this like obstacle that became this miraculous opportunity
0: you know it's really fascinating I learned this from one of my other uh, coaches and she's my one of my co-hosts on, on wellness unfiltered her name is Chris Wilkins and she's a she's a phenomenal coach um, but she she mentions that there was a study done where they actually analyzed the tears from people um, as that. as they, they would show them different emotional images that would to evoke maybe positive and negative emotions and things that would bring them to the point of tears and then they would analyze the tears and there's actually like specific hormone metabolites. So you can figure out from the hormone metabolites in the tears, what the person was experiencing when they were crying.
1: That's fascinating. Oh yeah. My gosh. I, I I well, because you know, that's the thing too, in our, our sickness care model. I mean, the, doctors and that you know the big team that would come in you know I, I, for a little while they were like concerned and they even went to my husband they said is she experiencing a sense of loss or you know what's going on with her and he was like you know she's all right just you know just let her let her get it out and then the next day I said no I, I just needed to just let go of all of that pain all of the grief leading up to it all the pain mm-hmm. of what our life is going to look like I just had to release it so it wasn't a sad cry, it was a releasing cry. And I didn't realize yeah. that for the next day, of course, you know, you don't realize it in the moment.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and of course there, there is some risk as I've talked about going into a procedure like this, even if it's a relatively common one that's been done many times and so on, there is an element of, of risk to both of you going through something like this, even like his body could reject it and so on. Um, yeah. yeah. So that
1: did that you- huge fear, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I am a highly sensitive person, um, you know, which I kind of really didn't really discover until after the transformation and everything. But, you know, just, I realized when I did kind of identify that through the writing of my book, I mean, that made so much more sense too. I was like, I was feeling just being in the hospital, just having surgery, just all of those people's energies around me. I was feeling that so intensely and I just had to just like release so much of that.
0: Hmm. Well, I imagine that that, like the people that were that were a part of your care team and and surgery team and whatnot, like I I, I imagine them being very good, very caring, professional people who, you know, all of them want to see you pull through this, you and your husband pull through this as well. And so uh, you know i I just can't imagine like what they experienced you know especially the last couple of years uh there's just kind of the toll on them and and uh wanting people to to make it and witnessing the the, the challenges and trials that they did so if you are uh, maybe you're an empath of sorts where you you do feel other people's energies that's that's a lot to try to take on and process
1: yeah absolutely absolutely i mean the care team was fabulous i mean we had top notch care at one of the best hospitals in i mean i'd say the world and mm-hmm. yeah. You know, they even have donors stay in like the VIP part of the hospital. And when they wheeled me up, they were all clapping at the nursing station. And I, I was still coming off of anesthesia. I said, why are you clapping? And they're like, you saved a life today. And I was like, oh, I didn't really think about it like that. I'm just trying to survive surgery and hoping my husband is too. But, you know, they were they were wonderful. But even that being said, I mean, when you're just in a hospital and being woken up for vitals every several hours and being injected with a blood thinner, Oh, that was, that burns, you know, I mean, it's just, it, it's just, if you're like said if you're really, you know, my husband, he was pretty good with that stuff. He works in hospitals all day and he doesn't really let that get to him. But, you know, for someone like me, it was, it was a lot to process.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So if we, if we take a step back a little bit, one of the things that you mentioned, um, because maybe you had, you had some challenges going through maybe adolescence, teen years, uh, I don't know if that spilled over into your early twenties and alcohol played a role in that, um, and I don't know what level of dependence you experienced with alcohol, but, and maybe you can, you can share that a little bit because at a certain point in time, you made a decision to stop consuming alcohol. And so I wonder if you could share just a little bit of backstory around that.
1: Sure. Sure. Well, like I said, I, you know, I'm a highly sensitive person, but I mean, it was one of those things that it's like, it's so obvious all along, but you don't realize it. You know, when someone tells you something. <laughs> the years hindsight later. is
0: twenty twenty. you know, yeah, <laughs> it was there yeah. all along. How, how did I miss it? Yeah. But, exactly. but it was just a part of you.
1: But it was, it was true. I mean, growing up being highly sensitive and not knowing what that was or what that meant, just, um, you know, kind of struggling with finding, I mean, I had a very loving family. I grew Mm -hmm. up in a very, you know, a privileged home. So I was very fortunate in that regard, but just finding my voice, feeling a lot of energy from lots of different people and not knowing why I did or why I felt things so deeply. And then entering high school and coming across alcohol, it was like, ah, this, wonderful thing that I was able to just like numb all the things I would feel Mm. and I could go into parties and be around people and all of a sudden I felt comfortable and it was it was wonderful (laughs) you know I I loved it, and it was such a helpful tool and then I ended up going into college and I grew up in New Jersey but then uh, moved down to South Carolina so I was in this new world and then alcohol was there again and and it was wonderful and it and it helped me and then it wasn't and then through the years, I mean, I would never say, I would never call myself an alcoholic. I mm-hmm, got my college mm-hmm. degrees. I had a family. I mean, I was, I was doing okay. I was doing well, but, um, I guess it was a week before the surgery. I said, you know, I'm I'm not going to drink right now. I'd had a glass of wine and my mind. I, I was always very highly sensitive to my mind chatter too. That's why I did right, yoga in yeah. meditation because my mind chatter would just felt like sometimes I was like wanting to run away from something that was in between my ears and it was, and it Which was an impossibility.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> so I remember um, I just had this kind of destructive round of mind chatter the week before the surgery and said, I- I'm not going to drink. I mean, I need to be clear. I'm having surgery next week and I- I've got to stay detoxed and focused. So I didn't drink. And then I had the surgery and the, you know, this really radical spiritual transformation. And then afterward, after the surgery, they told my husband not to drink for three months. And I said, they said, you know, you don't have to go three months, you're not on immunosuppressives or any medication, you know, a couple of weeks would probably be good in your best health. But so I said, Well, no, I'll do the three months with my husband. And then I did, after three months, and they said, you can have to my husband, you can have a drink here or there now at dinner. And I said, No, I said, I, I'm, I'm not I'm so clear, I can feel things I felt that, you know, that divine transformation. I was writing so much; it was all kind of coming out of me. I said, "This is really exciting, like how I'm feeling things." And 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 I realized I did go to a couple AA meetings because I, I did really like the work of I always liked self growth work. And mm-hmm. you know, yeah. people at the meetings, I'm like, "Wow, this is really profound work that the people here are doing." So I liked that support, but it made me realize that I was numbing myself for so many years with alcohol, and then when I stopped drinking. I realized too, I was doing it with food because yeah. I never really yeah. looked at food cause I always looked at alcohol first, but then when I wasn't drinking, you know, then it was like a yeah. big focus on, uh, well now you, you know, you can get rid of alcohol, but you can't get rid of food. So I've had to, and I, I, <laughs> yeah. I have to like really look at, you know, am I, am I numbing myself with food?
0: Yeah. And, and I can, I can very much enter into that as a, a, a I would say recovered binge eating food addict. Um, that can be a a huge challenge for people because, you know, we don't require alcohol to sustain life. You know, if somebody, if, if it was wiped off the face of the earth and we never had it again, the human population would probably be okay. But food, on the other hand, we're faced with all the time We're we're confronted with, we're given cues to eat There's social pressures to eat. We use hospitality celebration and so on. So that can be really, really difficult, especially if it becomes the tool to, replace. And and I think now even in our digital world, we have so many more emotional anesthetics available to us that can be food, that can be alcohol, that can be illicit drugs, that can be video games, social media, Netflix. There are so many avenues of escape. Why do you suppose it is that we pursue these avenues of escape rather than feel what we feel?
1: Well, I, I think there's I mean, I talk about sometimes like the void, you know, I mean, there will be a void, which is a disconnect from yourself, you know, or to spirit. And then that void gets very easy to fill when you feel that void. It's like, let's put something in there to fill it, whether it be alcohol, whether it be media, whether it be food. So, you know, it's challenging. And, And for me, I've had to realize, I mean, you know, I've, I've focused on food and exercise for, you know, most of my life, even, you know, physical therapy is related around exercise. But I realized there is nothing, there is no diet exercise plan that can, that can replace that aspect of like, I have to turn this over to something higher, you know, like, I'm not strong enough to not want to binge sometimes in the evening when I'm exhausted. You know, it's like, it it is so powerful that I have to, Marianne Williamson wrote, um, a course in miracles and weight loss and talks about it, like in terms of like, you have to just turn it over because we're not strong enough. You know, I mean, we're strong enough to like, I'm strong enough during the day to eat right and walk and have a really good routine. And then sometimes in the evening when I'm highly sensitive to my fatigue or my overwhelm or my overstimulation, that's yep. when like my urge to binge gets so strong that I have to just say, Oh, oh God, I, I can't do this right now. And I'm giving this to you and I'm going upstairs. <laughs> Right.
0: Door. <laughs> yeah, there, there is something about that. And I think AA, um, if I'm not mistaken, AA also encourages that a, a belief in a connection to a higher power whatever that may look like for the for the individual, um, you're you know, over it. Right. And and when we look at it just from a purely psychological and neurological standpoint, it makes sense because when we reach the place of decision fatigue, when we reach emotional and cognitive fatigue, we default to kind of our midbrain or more emotional brain and to our sort of primal or sometimes what is referred to as your reptile brain, where these decisions are not being made on your best long-term interests, but rather immediate gratification in the moment, escape from discomfort rather than you know, it's higher level thinking that allows us to say, I'm going to delay gratification because of a deeper, bigger purpose in my life.
1: Exactly. Very well said. Very well said. And it's so true. That's why it's not just like your nice little toolbox that works during the day may not work at night and you have to like go a lot deeper with why you're doing this and, and then turn it over and, and really just kind of go deeper because it's, it's a day-to-day challenge.
0: So a little bit earlier on in in our chat here, you used a couple of phrases and terminology and we kind of just passed over it. But I like to I like to go back and revisit that because I think it's helpful for those who might be watching and it might not be terminology or language they use to try to maybe put a practical explanation to it or, or a way to express it. And somebody who might not understand this or follow this, uh, what it might mean to them. So you talked about like, I think, uh, energy clearing, energy um, clearing. And and some kind of uh, like emotional cleansing that sort of thing. What what does that process look like? And kind of what are you referring to when when you use those terms?
1: Well, I mean, I wouldn't describe myself as an energy clearing practitioner per se. I mean, I do um, myofascial release. So I'll you know when I'm working with someone specifically, I mean, I'll try and. You know, release. I mean, I I truly believe and I've come across how um, emotions and tension can be stored in our body and especially in our tissues and our fascia and our
0: tissue.
1: So when I do um, work on people, I mean, I just think about how I'm releasing um, the tension from their tissues. And then like waterfalls, I mean, just clearing it out and just clearing it away from them. So it it can't harm them anymore. It doesn't have to, they can just let it go and really let it go. So I guess, you know, when I think about energy clearing, I think about that. And when I was before the surgery, I had done a couple of um, energy clearing sessions, like people had done them to me. And those were really great because those helped clear like all of, you know, the fear I had stored up in my body and, and just like things I had going into it. I had one intuitive say, uh, I literally see spirit wrapped around your organs right now. And it was just this way of thinking like all the energy in my body the you know, the energy that isn't useful, let's clear it away. And then all the connection that's in there can be used for really transformational purposes. And it was very exciting.
0: So for, for someone who might be like listening uh, and listening after the fact, like, what what is it actually like the question might be how does someone actually clear energy away because we we can say use this terminology like I, I had this energy clearing or someone did this energy clearing for me what does it actually look like in the moment what does that process look like and maybe what does it feel like because I and, and why I ask this is can I imagine there's gonna be people that are gonna listen to this and they might listen to it with a degree of skepticism or or curiosity or something like that and so what, what does that look like in the moment and what does that feel like
1: So, I mean, you can definitely work with an energy practitioner who like kind of through intentional work helps channel and clear it through you. But I'm also a big fan of, you know, you don't need a third party to do healing and clearing. I mean, just through the breath. I mean, just with an inhale connecting to yourself and thinking about, you know, bringing life force and energy into your body and exhaling, releasing anything in your body that doesn't serve. So it can be done as simple as that through just the intention through your breath, or it can be done more formally with, you know, people that have training in that work. And, you know, I always have, I always have to kind of add that people that you work with, I mean, they are maybe called healers, but the healing is done through you. It, it's done, and and you can tap into that at any moment. Like you don't necessarily right. party to do that. So just through the breath, just on your own, or if you want to go deeper with it and get help, you can, you know, contact people that you know people that do craniosacral therapy or mediumship, intuitive kind of readings, things things of that sort.
0: So is this sort of like a if somebody's helping you like a guided process? Do they give you some sort of verbal guidance to it? Do they place their hands on your body? Like. It can be
1: done remotely. I mean, there's definitely, I've worked with practitioners remotely, or you can work with people that will kind of gently put their hands on different energy centers in your body. If they work with the chakras, um, the different energy systems in your body, they might clear with just kind of hovering a hand over those centers and kind of doing like a, a guided, you know, meditative kind of process like that. So, you know, it can be done. It, it's really a very broad um, kind of concept energy clearing It can be done very specifically through those processes, or it can be done remotely.
0: Hmm. So, so then if you would, if you'd indulge me a little bit as a, uh, I'll share a little bit of my personal circumstance here, because I think it, this is why I'm a bit curious about this. So I just, you know, I have a physiotherapist in Canada that I see here and she does uh, a practice known as somatic experiencing. I'm not sure if you're familiar mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I have a, a hip issue that's plagued me in particular for the last couple of years. And, you know, in connecting the dots, we're wondering if it's actually, and and this is just me purely speculating, so anybody listening, don't take this as, (laughs) but uh, maybe, you know, I had COVID way, way, way back, back before it even blew up and was a thing. We had it back early in 2020, you know, uh, where nobody really knew a whole lot about it. Now we came out of it on the other side pretty good, but one of the potential or suspected symptoms that that is long haul is a type of like myalgia where it goes after uh, maybe parts of your body that have been previously injured and where there might be uh, sort of an underlying weakness. And so I've had two motorcycle accidents and a car accident. All of them happened like almost twenty years ago now, like one when I was eighteen when I was twenty three and twenty four. And okay. I've just ticked over forty. and after after having covid, these hip issues started to show up. Mm. and i've you know, I've seen a chiropractor, a physiotherapist, a massage therapist, an osteopath, a cranial sacral right therapist uh, left. Mm. And so, and and they keep and I've had x-rays because I was like, Am I getting osteoarthritis? Nope, bone looks totally fine, had had ultrasound, nope, can't find any structural deficits. So it's been a bit of a puzzle where we go, okay, like what what is what is going on here? And so my osteopath, you know, he said like he's he pointing me in the direction of this this lady who does uh somatic experiencing and just this idea there is potentially something connected to the nervous system or Mm -hmm. some other reason like yeah you can dig around in the fascia you can dig around in the muscles uh, bust up some scar tissue and stuff like that (laughs) that's a pretty brutal like sort of painful process but the point being is it, it seems to return right and we you know so it's like yeah sure you can keep going in there digging around breaking it up all that kind of stuff so uh, that that, you know, it sort of connects in some dots here. I'm just wondering, is this something that you might, in your work or something that, that does something similar you're describing, uh, work on in sort of a different way or a different level?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, I would start, you know, by definitely working with some of the fascia in that area and some of, you know, letting go of some of the physical stuff, but then absolutely like doing some clearing of any energy that's stored up in those tissues, trauma from the accidents um, you know, either one of them, and then or, or trauma through the years, and then you know having COVID, and maybe like um, just having that kind of mess with just like you know your your root chakra, your safety, your well being, and then like that getting stored in there, and then so always at the end of my sessions, I always like to do a kind of guided meditation where you know we kind of move up through the body, releasing and clearing every area. Um, and especially focused on each exhale, releasing, clearing, letting go of any tension or trauma stored up in that area. So, I mean, I would, I definitely, I think it's wonderful. You're working with the somatic therapist and to, you know, continue to just, you know, breathe and meditate and, and work on just releasing and clearing that area. What is this injury trying to tell me and why, and how can I let this go? And that's why, you know, I was, being interviewed the other day, and they were asking about some wellness tips. And I said, meditate, that's the best mm. one, because, you know, that's when you can start to really tune into what is this? Why is this? What's it telling me? And how can I let it go?
0: Yeah, well, fascinating that I just just uh, less than a week ago completed my my meditation teacher certification. Actually, oh, and so, uh, yeah, because I want another tool in my toolbox when when working with with clients as well, and a way to sort of work with them, uh, another way to sort of extend the work that I do with them, and so, and for for those listening, sometimes it's, it's helpful, and and this is maybe my own sort of definition, but I like to sort of distinguish between terms like meditation and mindfulness because the two sort of get lumped together as so though they're, they're the same thing, but Perhaps the way that I tend to think about it is that mindfulness is cultivating awareness of our external environment, the things that are around us and how we're sort of experiencing, interacting with them. We can still be in a meditative state, whereas meditation is kind of turning our focus inward and starting to look yeah. inward and see what's happening in our body. And so there, it, there's something to that. So for, from what you're describing, what I sort of gather, and I don't know if this is along the lines of like reiki or something like that. I, I really don't know a lot about these sort of modalities of healing, but it sounds it sounds kind of uh, somewhat similar if I'm if I'm understanding it correctly, but what I, what I'm hearing is that We store, like, I'm actually about halfway through The Body Keeps the Score by Bess uh, Bess Vanderpilt.
1: Yes, yes.
0: And man, that's that's not a book for the faint of heart, (laughs) for anybody who's listening. But wow, is it ever an eye-opening book. This is a a researcher into trauma and psychology. And he started with, like, Vietnam War veterans, I think, maybe back in the 80s or even 70s. This has to be, like, the most, like, groundbreaking book ever on this subject. But The Body Keeps a Score, referencing how... There is this connection between like our emotional state, our mental health, our physical, like these are all connected. They're not, we, we, I think in the Western world have have for for a very long time separated them into silos. You know, this is your mental health silo over here. This is your physical health silo over here and so on without recognizing that they really aren't separate. We're this interconnected uh, being. And so- uh, Yeah. So I kind of, did you have a moment of like, I I don't know if awakening is the right word. Maybe it sounds a little cliche to say that, but just where where you, you made this connection, you go, oh my gosh, like this is not just, you know, because you started out maybe in more allopathic physical model, but then you recognize that, okay, there's something more here.
1: Yes. I mean, that's what a lot of the, you know, the transformative moment after waking up from the surgery was, I mean, just this deep connection to myself and to spirit. And then when I went back to my physical therapy work, realizing real healing is being the vessel to channel that to other people. And that's, that's what I do now in my work. And that is why I feel like it's been so effective, not thinking of me as the healer, giving you something that, you know, it's more just like I'm a vessel and bringing it to you. And then, it's, it's connecting you to yourself and back up to, you know, wherever your connection lies and it's an infinite abundant source and it, you know, the, it, and it's, can be tapped to, into at any moment. And the healing is so deep and profound. It can overcome, you know, really anything. So I think that that book, you know, I was kind of referencing that a little bit about where I said, I believe tension is stored in the body because, you know, mm-hmm. there's the whole psychological and, you know, physical, medicine model now around tension being stored in the body and learning how to go deep and really help clear and release it through, you know, meditative processes or through very specific guided Mm -hmm. processes. So I think, I mean, you're on the right track. I mean, Mm -hmm. through all of that and now being with this, I mean, I, I can just sense that, you know, you're gonna, you're on kind of the cusp of real recovery with that because you're tapping into the real deep underneath it all. And that's amazing
0: because there's two other books that I, that I haven't read yet, but they're on my list. One is by Peter Levine, um, Waking the Tiger. And then the other one is When the Body Says No by Gabor Matei. And uh, so I think both of those are going to be quite quite interesting reads and just kind of exploring this. Now you use some language here that again, might not be familiar to certain people. And so I don't know what sort of your religious lean is, but you've used the term God and you've used the term spirit. Do you do you have a particular, I don't know, I guess, religious philosophy or because again, for somebody listening, they might hear this and go, "Well, what do you mean by this?" you know because in the in the say the realm of Christianity, there's a belief in God and a belief in the Holy Spirit, but are you referring to that in the Christian sense or do you have, are you referring to it in a different sense
1: well, I'm a student of a course in miracles, and um that I think is my guiding spiritual principle and Prior to the surgery, I mean, I was considered myself spiritual, but not religious. I grew up in a Christian family, but then turning to yoga and meditating, with, you know, in a more kind of Buddhist and Buddhist centers and things, you know, just kind of went very broad. But in that process, I think I did get kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater and lost my connection to spirit and really relied way too much on myself you know, I thought I can overcome this. I'm strong. I meditate. I do yoga. I have East and West, you know, I can overcome this with my own strength. And then right before the surgery, I had this moment of what I call in the book, spiritual surrender, where I just kind of got down and said, God, if that's what you are, I don't know. Um, I need a miracle here, you know, and I I had started reading the course of miracles and and that uses a lot of, um, Christian language, even though Mm -hmm. it's not described as a Christian text. Um, so I said, you know, I was reading it and I was a little uncomfortable with that word, but I said, let me just go with it because, you know, it just feels right. And so I said, God, if, if that's what you are, like, like, please, I need a miracle. I need my husband to survive. I need to get through this. I have children. And then when I woke up, I felt like it was like miracle granted. And mm-hmm. it was something where I felt like I didn't have to convince anybody or say, this is, The path you should follow. Like I just knew deep down that I was so deeply connected to something way higher than me, and that that's been, I mean, the guiding principle behind my work in my life, and it's been it's been extraordinary.
0: So if I could if I could probe just a little bit here, um, because I imagine, because of course I I work in 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 the realm of physical health as well, but I think I really like to try to connect, you know, emotional health and compassion and 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 mental health as well, because I, I do believe they're all connected as well. But somebody, if you if you encounter a skeptic, because it it sounds like, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm I'm over what's the word I'm looking for. I don't want to say over not, overstepping isn't the right word, but anyways, it sounds as though you might feel as though almost no ailment couldn't necessarily be overcome, or, or is there a belief in there that like virtually, you know, let's say somebody gets gets some kind of really difficult, you know, cancer and they catch the diagnosis really late, and it could be like a stage four type uh, cancer is there the idea that this could potentially be healed through a a spiritual way or or what is, what is sort of the, the, the thinking behind that?
1: Well, I always like to be a little careful there because I mean, spirit can guide you to say, I have this pain and I need to go see a doctor. And that's, you know, the place where they find it and they fix it and, and, and they get you better. So to say like, I feel something, but I'm going to heal it with, with spirit. I think is a little tricky. I mean, I do believe in mm-hmm. the power of thoughts. I mean, Bruce Lipton, you know, the biology of belief. I mean, I don't think there could be any question about our, our thoughts create our reality. However, um, I think we have to be careful in thinking. Oh, if I was more spiritual, then maybe I wouldn't have got this cancer diagnosis. Right. That's right. Really. That's just it's and it's un, it's unnecessary because once you get the diagnosis, you need to connect and you need to. You need spirit to help you get through that process. So it's not a time to feel like shame that, you know, I wasn't spiritual enough or spirit could fix this without chemo. You know, I mean, th- those are just, I think, very, and, you know, I mean, they talk in a Course in Miracles about, I mean, it's just, you know, the physical body and the spiritual body and, you know, the belief that anything that if only love is real and anything else is an illusion. So, you know, the the love you feel for yourself is what's going to get you through that, that physical ailment. So, mm-hmm. you know, I like to be be careful that, you know, spirit does is the ultimate healer, but it has to be, you know, done in this physical
0: world. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's a really um, balanced way to look at it, because I think th- there might be a fear for people who that people might listen to this, and not necessarily just this, but they, they might start going down this pathway of sort of learning and gaining understanding in this. but. Maybe also there's the opportunity for charlatans and those who would like to mislead and prey on emotionally vulnerable people and make promises they can't keep. um, When in fact, like there is a place and there is a role, as we've talked about for allopathic medicine, you know, physical medicine to heal the physical body. And while there is maybe a connection to mental and emotional and spiritual health that we don't necessarily want to disregard or get lost in some sort of um, fantasy, I guess we could say, Mm -hmm. where it's like, I don't need this, this physical medicine. Um, so I guess in, in your philosophy, do you see that they can work in a complementary fashion?
1: Definitely. Definitely. I mean, I see the, you know, the, all the medications on my husband's dresser of all the immunosuppression meds. And I look at the life force in him mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's, it's incredible. I'm like, those don't, those don't dim him. You know, he's not poisoning himself and k- disconnecting himself. I mean, he is thriving and doing so well. And I, I'm, I'm grateful for our for all of that, so and and not to mention, I think especially you know with COVID and and other things, you know the the kind of alternative healthcare being really like thrown under the bus of you know people being attacked by like oh if this person, you know these holistic healers think if you know they have a positive mindset they don't have to wear a mask you know what I mean like it's mm-hmm. like, I'm like no, no 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 one's saying that you know or at least I'm not saying that with with my work in terms of holistic healing right not to say like we're just gonna overcome and. And, and not listened to anything else. I mean, it's, it's a world that has to be complimentary and, and holding hands and for the best good of everybody.
0: Yeah. I, I think one of the, the struggles that we face is when, when we're more emotionally and mentally distressed, like we have been, especially going through a pandemic where there's been a lot of fear propagated as well, which is actually immunosuppressive. Um, mm-hmm. When this is taking place and we re- kind of retreat into our more primal or animal type instincts and, and sort of, disconnect from our higher level sort of cognitive rational logical type thinking because this isn't to denigrate emotion and, and things like that these are very valuable parts of the human experience but where i'm going with this is we sort of get pushed back into there's a binary choice here you know you either go this path or this path and if you're in this tribe or you're in this tribe and if you're in that tribe you're nuts but if you're in that tribe you're i don't know you're you're deceived by uh, the global cabal or, you know, like there's this, you get pushed into like these really extremes. And it's like, uh, you know, I would say I'm like my hardcore centrist in a sense that <laughs> I really try to take a balanced approach to this, uh, yeah. and think about it critically, um, while having heart and emotion in it. Cause in, in my own work, I say, I try to connect the, the psychology of behavior change with the science of metabolism, but also the compassion of human connection, because I really think they, they all need to, to work together.
1: The compassion, like you said, and that, that's the foundation of all of it. I mean, thats it's really beautifully put.
0: Yeah. And so you you ended up uh, writing a book, uh, yes. c- c- kind of telling your story. That in itself, I wonder if that was a cathartic process, uh, trying to put your story onto paper, and if there was, there was also some really difficult moments in that process.
1: Well, it was a very, very healing process. Of course, cathartic at times, um, but it was... After that transformation and after that connection, and like I said, things were coming in so clear that made me say, I don't want to drink because it's just coming in so clear. I just, I was already writing already. I, I had writing already. I had been writing for, I'd say, the last year prior to that, just a lot, just in a very therapeutic way, morning journals and, and coming out. And then I I had this idea. I had a premonition, as I can say in the beginning of my book to write, to write a book, but I didn't know what it was going to be about. And this was before the transplant. So I told my husband, I said, I want to write a book. And he said, about what? And I said, I don't know, but I just feel like there's, there's just some, there's, I just feel this vessel and and, and I just have to channel it and, and I'm putting it on the pages and I don't know where I'm going with this. And then the transplant happened. And I said, well, I certainly yeah,
0: there you go. Yeah. And
1: then afterward, I just, it was, it was very healing once, you know, we got back home because we stayed in New York city after the surgery for a month. And then once I got back home and the kids went back to school that fall, and I was just kind of putting the pieces back together and getting back to life. I mean, writing my book was just a really wonderful tool to just kind of digest it all. And then also put it all together with growing up. And then that's when I you know discovered so much about myself and, uh, and it just, I felt very guided. And I mean, I had to deal a lot with the negative thoughts in my head saying, you know, yeah. who are you to write a book? You're going to write a book. What are you crazy?
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know right. Saying? Yeah. Who, who are, yeah. Yeah. And and as we sort of wind down with, you know um, I have kind of two more questions. If if you would indulge me before we kind of, we kind of close out here because I'm loving this conversation. I appreciate your openness and and also your willingness to, to allow me to sort of push a little bit with some of my questions and to dig into, to what you believe and you've been very comfortable and and open about that. Um, how, how did your kids handle y- you and your husband going through this process? Like that can't be easy for them. What what age were they when the transplant took place?
1: They were six and eight. So wow, thankfully I... they were young enough to not really know, you know, when I said, dad's going to need a kidney transplant, they didn't really know what to do with that. It, they didn't really have any, th- that wasn't scary. They were just like, wow, you take the, ki- take the kidney out of you and put it in dad. That's kind of cool. And I was like, it is cool. And so, and then when we stayed in New York for the summer, they went back to school that fall and told everyone we went on vacation for a month in New York. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so um, they handled it. They handled it very well.
0: And, and I gather they would have had maybe somebody caring for them when you and your husband are going through this process and, and yes, whatnot. We
1: have four amazing grandparents that, um, and, and lots of family and friends too. So yeah, we had a lot of support, which was so essential.
0: Hmm. So with, with this last question, I wonder if you wouldn't mind indulging me because we've talked about really maybe the power of, of these different ways of creating healing in the body. And obviously there's more than one. There's, you know, maybe physical, there's emotion, there's mental, there's spiritual ways of sort of creating some healing in the body. But in some cases that isn't enough. Uh, Somebody will pass away at, you know, 43 years old or 50 years old or something like that. And they weren't able to overcome this, this illness what is kind of your interpretation of this process? Because there might be some out there who would think, well, I guess they didn't have enough faith or, or, or things like that. But how how do you see that kind of uh, playing? out? how would you interpret an experience like that?
1: Yeah. I mean, death is part of life. I mean, in, in, and, and death is a transition and, and, you know, a spiritual transition. So, I mean, just, just like birth, I mean, birth is, you know, a spirit entering the world and, and death is a departure and, and I mean, I'm not saying it's not painful losing loved ones. My gosh, I mean, it can be horrifically traumatic and 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 so much to deal with. But at the same time, you know, just kind of connecting with yourself and through spirit to help guide you through that, you know, and saying you know, I feel lost without this person and, you know, please like be, be here with me to help me through this and, you know, ask for signs, ask for communication from, from their spirit because they, they will come back and they will guide you, but they also need to be asked and that you also have to make sure you feel safe and say, you know, I I want to make sure it's in a way that I feel comfortable. So I, um so I certainly don't think, um you know, Departure has anything to do with lack of connection to spirit or, or to anything mm. like that. I mean that that that's, that's an unfortunate part of life, but it's mm. we need we need our we need our spirituality to get us through these things.
0: Yeah, and, and maybe why why I pose that question is I, I would say it's maybe a, a thought of mine or a concern of mine that. Uh, if we go down this path, that there could be the potential to become very self-absorbed and so get this idea that, well, because I'm like, in one sense, we all are very special and very unique and, and life is precious. and And each one of us, I believe, brings value to this planet. But there can also be, I think, particularly in Western culture, maybe we've witnessed the rise in sort of self-absorption because of the, you know, the, the rise of social media and so on where where we think, well, this isn't fair that this is happening to me. And, you know, you think about even like, you know, someone dying in the early 20s of cancer and you'd think, again, you know, this isn't how life is supposed to play out and and so on and so forth. But uh, maybe there's a way, you know, I wonder if if we can sort of escape from this self-centered approach or this. And I hesitate to use this word because it's not a clinical diagnosis, but almost like a type of narcissism where we, we, but really I think self-absorption is a better way of expressing it. You know, how can we sort of break free from this self-absorption and maybe just recognize that life isn't necessarily going according to our plan and that's okay or maybe even a positive thing if life continues after death?
1: Well, I mean... You touched on a lot. So, I mean, (laughs) I I guess, you know, in A A Course in Miracles, it it talks about, you know, we're we're all children of God. So none of us, you know, so you're no better, but you're certainly no worse than your neighbor. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in terms of like the narcissism of I'm better, I'm worse, you know, none of us are any better, but none of us are any worse. I mean, there's room Mm -hmm. in in the light for all of us. And we're, you know, we're all special beings. Um, And then, so... And then I'm trying to think of the second part of your question. So that was the part that, that touched on me on narcissism.
0: Yeah, really really, just this this concern of of people sort of misinterpreting or maybe misunderstanding sort of spirituality in a way that it, it becomes a very self-absorbed way yes, of being.
1: Okay. you judged my – so I also think too about, you know, we're not the architect, we're the builder, you know. So there's, you know, the universe, spirit, God, whatever you want to say, like that's the creator of – you know that that's making the plans. You know, in AA they say like letting go and letting God. You know, knowing like, you know, we we all think, oh, I have a successful career and I'm doing great because of because of what I did, and you know, remembering mm-hmm. that there's a much bigger plan of who you are and why you're here. I mean, you're here to extend Spirit's love to to your brother. You know, and, and whether or not, in what capacity you're doing it in, I mean, that's your choice. You have free will. But at the same time, to think, to rely on your own strength, that you're the one who's doing it all. It's like, you're not doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's there's someone else designing the blueprints and you're just carrying out the plans.
0: Yeah. And actually, Cindy came in with a question here. And, you know, uh, I wonder if there was a missed part for what it was part of their journey on this earth. Um, Thank you. Thank you, Cindy, for asking that question. And maybe just, uh, you know, if I'm interpreting it correctly, we're just saying that, you know, each one of us maybe has a different journey and a different length of journey. And maybe just because we say, OK, the average life expectancy of someone in North America is 78 years for men and 82 years for women, that somehow that's our entitlement or our allotment. And that really isn't a guarantee. And maybe what we could say is this is all the more reason to try to live in the present moment because we don't know when for each one of us that 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 final moment will come.
1: Absolutely. God's time is in the present moment. You know, we live one present moment at a time.
0: Yeah. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and with your openness, um, sharing your story um, and and indulging me in what I think were, were sometimes difficult, difficult questions. I really appreciate your willingness to, to engage in that way. Uh, if people want to connect with you, if they want to, if they want to read your story, if they want to learn more about you or even maybe work with you, where do they find you?
1: So uh, www.melissamayor.org has um, information about how to get my book about the holistic physical therapy sessions. I do, I have blog posts, podcasts and, and mm-hmm. all sorts of things on there at melissamayer.org. So that's a good place Thanks. to see it all.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And we'll we'll include that in the show notes as well. So uh, to close out the show, then uh, maybe you have some final words of wisdom that you could, uh, well, let's put this on your shoulders. <laughs> some final <laughs> words of wisdom to share from what we've talked about today, just to encourage people as they're moving forward.
1: So, yeah, they, there's a quote by Latsu I heard not too long ago where it said, um, he who knows others is wise. He who knows himself is enlightened. And I think about that, that, you know, we're, we're here to, to learn who we are, because once we learn who we are, then we can really serve others and, you know, our, our purpose best. So, you know, just go go on that journey of, of figuring out who you are and why you're here.
0: <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And uh, we'll chat again next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to Between the Before and After. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, or leave a review, because that helps this podcast to reach and inspire more people. I love exploring the stories that take place between the before and after, the powerful experiences that shape who we become, and I love human potential. I love the possibilities that lie within us. So whatever you may be up against, I hope these stories inspire you, because if you're still here, your story's not done yet, so keep moving forward
1: anyone can come from any place of brokenness and destitution and
0: build an amazing life.